So we continue our study of ecclesiology this week by looking at the aspect of the worship of the church. If you were here last week, uh, you might remember part of Pastor Rick's lesson was taking us through the mission of the church, which was ultimately to worship God. Right? That is the goal of our mission, to bring people into God's kingdom to worship Him. And then once brought into God's kingdom, to work to the end that we would all be further conformed into the image of Christ. And so, Pastor Rick pointed us to the reality that worship is first from God, it's through Christ, in truth, by the Spirit, with holiness, and to God. Now, as we continue thinking about this aspect of worship... What we want to understand is that, in one sense, all of life is worship, right? In one sense, every aspect of our life is worship. We're told here in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So by this we understand that the Word of God governs or regulates all of our life. Right? We desire to live in conformity to the Word of God. Uh, but this morning, we want to narrow our topic here a bit from just kind of how we individually live our lives in a sense of all of worship to what does this look like in a corporate setting. We, we take it out of the, our lives in general and bring it into this aspect of when we gather together as God's people for corporate worship, what does that Look like, And this is a really important issue because many churches today believe that they have complete freedom to worship God however they want. Right? It's just, well, as long as we have God on our minds, we can do whatever it is that we want in a worship service. Ours is a day where experimentation and creativity in a worship service is seen as a virtue. The more creative you are, the more God is pleased with that, that worship. But we want to ask the question here, what does the scripture tell us in regards to the worship of God? Does God give us instructions on how he is to be worshipped? Okay, so that question... Uh, was one of the talking points during the time of the Reformation between the Puritans and the Anglicans is there was a breaking away from the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and there was a, let's look to Scripture, sola scriptura, let's let the Word of God dictate how we worship God. There was discussion amongst Christians on what exactly does that look like. And so this discussion came about between the Puritans and the Anglicans Anglicans, and the title for this was later given the title, The Regulative Principle of Worship. And you see this principle clearly stated when you look at our confession, the confession that we hold to here at Faith, the 1689, in chapter 22, paragraph 1, and uh, if I can start over here, Becky, with you, if you can read that. Way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself, and so evident 
and by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so I, I think that's an excellent explanation of what we're talking about when we think through how are we to worship God. And you'll notice the two words that I put in bold here, limited and prescribed, deal with this aspect of regulation. Okay? Of God regulating how he is to be, to be worshipped. Reformed theologian G.I. Williamson gave a more succinct definition to the regulative principle when he said, what is commanded is right and what is not commanded is wrong. Okay, so there's a really... Just kind of take chapter 22 and summarize it down to a sentence. I think that's a good explanation of it. Uh, on top of that, Scottish theologian James Bannerman had this to say. Don, can you read that? In the case of the Church of England, its doctrine is in regard to church power and the worship of God is that it has a right to decree everything except what is forbidden in the Word of God. In the case of our own church, Okay, so Bannerman here is dealing with this aspect. When he talks about the Church of England, he's talking about the Anglicans, okay, and then talking about our own church. Those would, who would follow more of the Puritan mindset there. And so you can see the two distinctions. One says it has a right to decree everything except what is forbidden in the Word of God. The other group says we have a right to decree nothing except what is expressly laid down or by implication is enjoined by the Word of God. Uh, Dr. Sam Waldron, I think, gives a, a good explanation of this when he uses this analogy, and he says, the difference between Puritans and Anglicans may be helpfully illustrated by means of two builders intent on building the temple of God. Mr. Anglican must use the materials of the Word of God, but has no blueprint and may use other materials. Mr. Puritan must only use the materials of the Word of God, and he has a blueprint. It takes no special genius to discern that the two completed buildings will differ drastically or to discern which will be more pleasing to God. Okay, so that, that's the issue that they were working through here is what place does the Word of God have in the worship of God and can we bring in things outside of the Word of God that aren't expressly forbidden in the Word of God? Okay? So maybe this, this will help. This is the Puritan mindset here. True worship is only what is commanded, only what is laid down for us in Scripture. The Anglicans saw it from a slightly different perspective. They said true worship is what is commanded, but also anything that is not forbidden. Okay? And we're going to think through that a little bit more on a practical level. What does that look like? And where do we see uh, churches going with this? But the best question that we should ask is, again, what does the scriptures teach in regard to this issue? Okay? I don't want to limit this just to the Puritans and Anglicans and how they thought, because I believe that they were trying to look at the Word of God and ask that question of, of what does this look like? What does proper worship 
look like. And I want to start, let's start back in the Old Testament and just kind of work our way through so that when we get into the New Testament, we have some frame of reference for what that looks like. So, in Exodus, if you remember, God commanded Moses to make the tabernacle. Now, just let, let's think back here real quick. If you remember the construction of the tabernacle, did God leave it up to Moses' imagination in any way on what that tabernacle was to look like? No, he didn't, did he? Okay. As a matter of fact, here's what he said in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. Can you read that? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Would you like to read that? Okay. Yep, tabernacle. Yep. Yep. That's okay. Good job. Thank you. Appreciate that. So notice the the instruction here. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Okay? So, it wasn't as if Moses could walk in and just say, you know, I think... No. <laughs> right? There, there wasn't any... You know, no, Moses, don't think. Just obey, listen to what the Word of God, what, what the Word of God says. And I don't want you to miss this. This is the heart of what we're trying to get out here. Why is this such an important issue? This right here, that I may dwell in their midst. This is the issue that we're talking about. When we're talking about the worship of God, we want God's blessing and God's presence in our worship as we worship Him rightly. Right? He promises to dwell amongst His people. And that's the issue for the, uh, at the heart for God's people because we want God. Amen? We, we want to be in the presence of of God. Okay? So there was the laying out of the instructions there for Moses on how the tabernacle was to be built. Okay? Exactly as he had been shown. Go ahead and turn with me now to Leviticus chapter 8. And I want to look through with you here some really important words that you'll see come up over and again. Up to this point in Leviticus, if you remember at the beginning of Leviticus, it, it starts with the laws concerning the different offerings and how are those are to be performed before God. Okay, So you have this issue of um, what would be acceptable sacrifices and the regulations that God places on those in order for those to be acceptable in His sight. Okay, And so let's start here at chapter 8, and I would like to read verses 1 through 4. So Dave, if you could start us off by reading Leviticus 8, verses 1 through 4.
Okay, thanks, Steve. Now, notice verse 4, because this is going to be a refrain that you see running throughout Leviticus 8 and into Leviticus 9. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Okay? Keep that in mind. Now we're going to look at verse 9. Ed, can you read verse 9? Leviticus 8, verse 9. As the Lord commanded Moses. Look at verse 13. Eli, can you read verse 13? Uh, yeah, Leviticus 8, verse 13. 13, yep. Okay, Carlos, verse 17. Very good. Okay, Marilyn, can you read verse 21? Okay, verse 29, Margaret. Okay, so one more passage here, verse 36. Ronnie, can you take that one? Okay. So here's this refrain, hopefully, that you just see ringing all through Leviticus 8. As the Lord commanded Moses. Then some more regulations, as the Lord commands. Everything was done in order and according to the command of the Lord. Okay, so right? So this is the, uh, the consecration of Aaron and his sons setting up the high priestly system of sacrifice here. Very serious. Right? When God says, if you're going to worship me, here's how it must be done. Now, let's roll into chapter 9. Jessica, if you can read verses 5 through 7. Okay, good. So, we see the same thing there in verses 5 through 7, right? We must do as the Lord has commanded. Okay, so as the tabernacle was erected according to the pattern that God gave to Moses, 
as we looked at in Exodus, and as the high priestly system of sacrifice was set up to worship God correctly, the people were not left to their own imaginations or their own desires when it came to worshiping God. In fact, when this was tried by Aaron's sons, you probably remember this story, something very drastic happened. Okay, look with me here. Stacy, if you could read chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Okay. A, a very serious reaction to not following what the Lord has commanded, right? God uses this example for us, lays out Nadab and Abihu as an example that he is to be worshipped in the way that he has prescribed and by the means that he has prescribed. God takes proper worship of himself very seriously for the glory of his name and the good of his own people. Okay, So there's just a, a, a quick look there between Exodus and Leviticus and we can see that this issue of worship is very serious and not to be taken lightly. You have another account here, and this is a passage uh, that I think is probably most explicit, one that's referred to probably most often when we talk about this issue of the regulative principle of worship. When the people of Israel were entering into the promised land, God gave specific instructions in what they were to do and not to do. So go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Verses 29 through 32. Okay, Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 through 32. Jolene, would you mind reading that one? Thank you very much. So at the heart of this passage, you have proper worship in the sight of God as the topic of discussion. And notice there in verse 32, everything that I command you, 
you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. And why? Why were they not to add to it or to take from it? The reason for this is because the mind and the imaginations of man are such that they will inevitably lead to sin. Our minds are to be renewed by the Word of God. They are not to be used to add to the Word of God in any way. God is jealous for His glory, and He has decided that this is how He would set it up in order for Himself to be properly worshipped and for the good of the people. That you wouldn't have instances like Nadab and Abihu coming in and just kind of taking this on their own and saying, let's offer this unauthorized fire. Let's do that which the Lord has not commanded. And here you have the same type of mentality. We don't look to other people and say, well, that's a really cool way to worship. And let's, let's do that. Right? No, we, we follow what the Word of God has laid out for us. Again, because this is an issue of God being glorified and us being helped by His, His presence amongst us, which is what we are longing for. One more passage here from the Old Testament that I want us to, to look at, and this is a little more extensive, but turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 16. We're going to read verses 1 through 18, so we'll break this up. 2 Kings 16, verses 1 through 18. And let's see if I can start. Des, can I start with uh, you? Can you read verses 1 through 4? And then... Uh, Ryan, can you read 5 through 9? Lydia, can you read 10 through 14? And then Amber, if you could read 15 through 18. Okay, Des?
So, very important to see at the beginning of this passage that King Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Okay, so there's the, you have that setting here for the rest of the story as you're moving forward. And I want you to notice here, it says that he didn't do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, but he walked in the ways of the king of Israel. He even burned his son uh, as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So if you remember what we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 12 about this aspect of not following after the pagan, the pagan ways of worship, you see King Ahaz being guilty of that right here. But I don't want to stop there because some people can look at this as they may have in Deuteronomy 12 and say what the Lord was forbidding there was child sacrifice and that was it. They had freedom to do these other things, but he was just forbidding that. But we see in Deuteronomy 12 also in this passage here in 2 Kings 16 that it says he even burned his son as an offering. Not that he only burned his son as an offering and therefore did what was despicable or dishonorable in the sight of God. He did other things that were dishonorable as well. And so you walk into this this story here in verses 10 through 18 in particular, and Ahaz is mesmerized by this foreign altar in Damascus that we've read about. And notice that he doesn't completely get rid. This is really important to see in this in verses 10 through 18 especially. He doesn't completely get rid of the bronze altar which the Lord authorized to be part of proper worship but he simply moves it to the north side, right? So he just moves it aside and sets up his own act of worship and says, I'm gonna, I'll worship here at this altar that I've seen in Damascus and that I've sent to Uriah the priest to construct, but I'll also worship at the bronze altar as well. So there wasn't a complete get-it-out type of mentality with the things that the Lord had prescribed, but he brought in his own way that he thought would be acceptable in the sight of God. But as we learned from the beginning of this passage, he didn't do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God. Additionally, we read here that he modified the bronze altar that was in the house. He has reconstructed it, so to speak. I mean, just think of the boldness and the brazenness of here's what's been commanded by God to, for proper worship to take place. And then we come along and say, I'm going to tweak that a little bit. I'm just going to modify that here a little bit. And I don't think that that is that foreign to what we see in much of modern day Christianity. When it comes to the worship of God. We don't get rid of the Bible altogether. But let's use other means more in order to relate to the people in our worship of God better. Let's not make sola scriptura the primary means for worshiping God, but let's bring in these other things and let's tweak this and let's, right, so committees are formed and people sit down and what, what do we think would be good to do in order to engage with the people? And the word of God is set aside and every now and then a couple verses will be grabbed and sprinkled in to keep the Bible somehow within the service. And I say that this is dishonoring in the sight of God because we have abandoned His Word. 
So when we look at these passages from the Old Testament, we learn, we learn again that God takes the worship of himself very seriously. So as we move into the New Testament here, we want to think about what elements God has given in order for proper worship to take place in our corporate gatherings. As Pastor Rick talked about last week, and as we've actually hit on earlier in this class as well, we know from John 4 that the worship that is acceptable before God is that which is within spirit and in truth. Okay? But as we look throughout the scriptures, do we see elements or components that God has given to us so that he may be worshipped properly? And I would suggest that there is. Okay? And you can see these on your, on your notes there. First, we see the public reading of the word is to be part of our corporate worship. And we see this most clearly in 1 Timothy 4.13. So, Pete, if you wouldn't mind reading that. 1 Timothy 4.13. Okay, so the public reading of Scripture, right, is to be part of the service. A couple other passages that are more implicit in this area. Acts 15.21. I can't see who else is in that row. Does that come to you there, Rick? Okay. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who Okay, so again, the reading of the Word of God had, has taken place amongst the people of God. Revelation 1 3. Kathy, if you can read that. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it before the time is Okay, again, so you're seeing the reading aloud of the words and. Obviously, in a, in a corporate setting, that's very important. So the reading of the Word of God is a proper and necessary component in order for God to be worshipped. Okay? The next one that we see is praying in accordance with the Word is to be a part of our service. Josiah, can you read that? Acts 2.42. Okay, so... When we look at the early church, what do we see themselves? They're giving themselves to the teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Okay? Rachel, can you read Colossians 4 2? Okay. And now, the reason that we would say praying in accordance with the word is because we know when we read through the rest of the scriptures, what you see, and this is really helpful when you look back. Through the word of God, you see the people of God reiterating back to God what he has said in his word. That doesn't mean it, you, know, you have to read it exactly as is, but the word of God guides and instructs your prayers. Okay? So praying in accordance with the word. Okay? Another aspect of it is that we should sing together when we come together to worship. Okay? Ephesians 5.19 Danielle, I think that's coming back around to you. Can you read Ephesians 5.19? Okay, very good. And then, Rod, I think that's coming over to you. If you get Colossians 3.16... Okay. 
Okay, so really, really important here, right? This aspect of corporate singing, coming together as the people of God, singing being one of those elements that should be evident in our time together. And notice what's happening within this. Within this singing, we're teaching one another through these things. We're confessing this together and we're teaching one another. We're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right? So singing is a vital component when the people of God come together and we want to make sure that we're singing doctrinally sound songs because we're teaching each other through our singing. Okay, So that's, that's important as well. So you have the reading of the Word, the praying in accordance with the Word, singing the Word, and then fourth, the Word needs to be preached. Yolanda, if you can take that one, 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Okay, good. So, Paul's charge to Timothy, Timothy, preach the word. Okay, so the proclamation of the word of God, the preaching of the word of God when we come together is absolutely necessary. And notice, preach the word. Don't preach your own ideas, your own imaginations. Preach the word. As he told them earlier in the same letter, study to show yourself approved unto God rightly dividing the word of truth, right? So this, these all work together, okay? And then fifth, we're to see the word in our corporate gatherings. And by that, we mean the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So Matthew 28, Jesus giving his instructions to his apostles here. And Shelley, if you can take that one. Very good. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. I don't know if you can see that all the way in the back there. Deborah, can you see that? I'll, I'll, I'll read it. I'll give you the next one, okay? So 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul addressing the Corinthian church here, you should be doing this when you come together, and you should be doing it properly. Okay, that was one of the issues that he was dealing with here, was the proper taking of the Lord's Supper. Now, those are the elements or the parts of corporate worship that we would consider vital uh, to proper worship. So, as you, for example, each week as you look through your, your bulletin, and you'll, you'll see these components that we have them in there, and for a very specific reason. It's because we believe that the Word of God tells us that this is how God is to be worshipped, right? And He blesses the worship of Himself. When God is worshipped properly... God blesses that, and I think we've all experienced that. And that is what we desire, amen? We desire the presence of God amongst us when we gather together as his people. 
So those are the elements uh, because God has laid them down in his word. But something that is important, and I want to make sure that we clarify here when we talk about this regulative principle, is that there is a distinction or a limitation that needs to be made between the parts or the elements of worship and what are called the circumstances of that worship. Let me refer again here to our confession, and you'll see what I mean here. Can you read that, Deborah? Okay, so really important. There are some aspects of the worship of God, okay, which common sense ought to dictate. So we see that, that there is some flexibility, but where is that flexibility? And here's where it is. While the parts or the elements of public worship are divinely limited, God has left the circumstances of worship to be determined by the light of nature, Christian common sense or prudence, and the general rules of Scripture. So let me just give you some practical thought on this so it'll sink in a little bit more here. When we speak about circumstances, we're speaking of things such as, let's say, the time of our meetings. In other words, we start our corporate worship at 10.30. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to start at 10.30, right? So there's flexibility there. There's, There's a thinking through by the leadership of the church Okay, what, what would be a good time to do that? What would be a good time to have Sunday school? be a good time to have our prayer meeting? be a good time to have our corporate worship? So those are circumstances where there are, there's some flexibility. As long as it's taking place on the Lord's Day, there's nothing in the Bible that says that we have to start at a certain time. So that circumstance is left to our common sense to think through that. Also, the place of our meeting is not specified. We're thankful for this building that God has given to us, but God forbid that something should happen to it if it's where it became not conducive for us to meet together in it, and we had to meet elsewhere as the people of God. Let's say we had to go meet in a field or something like that. There wouldn't be anything necessarily wrong with that gathering together as the people of God as long as the elements of worship are not compromised. Okay, uh, Whether we sit in seats, in pews, on the floor, all of these things are not a matter of true worship before God. And I think, you know, I think this becomes really apparent when you go to foreign countries, Right? You're used to, okay, they have to have these, and you get in there, and it's different, and it throws you off, and you're like, I, I guess we're sitting on the floor here. All right, that's, you know, how that, is that a matter of worship before God? No, but is the reading of the Word of God, and the preaching of the Word of God, and the seeing of the Word of God, and baptism and supper, are those elements crucial? Ought they to be there? Absolutely. So that's the commonality that we should see wherever we go in this world, Right? Because those elements ought to be in place. So in many places, those circumstances of worship are going to look much different than what we're used to. Well, how how about music? Should our singing be accompanied by an instrument? And if so, should that instrument be a guitar or a piano or drums or a bongo? 
or all of the above, right? We, we want to think through that. We want to see what that would look like. Can we bring these instruments together in a way that will point to the words that we are singing together, right? Will they be an addition to the singing of those words and not a distraction from it, right? So those are things that have to be thought through. We have to deal with. So there's flexibility with these. But we do know from what Paul shared with the Corinthian church that our worship is to be done decently, with order, and for the edification of the saints. Okay, so there's not a free-for-all. We just say, well, these things are in, in place. We have the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, the seeing of the word, the singing of the word. All those are in place, so we can just do whatever we want as long as those are in there. No, Paul says... Everything needs to be done decently and in order. So we're to remove obstacles that might obstruct or distort the true worship of God. Okay, let me just make a couple closing thoughts, and then we should have about five minutes if you guys have any questions or uh, any thoughts of your own that you want to you share there. Listen, churches may differ as to where the line is drawn between circumstances and parts of worship without ceasing to be true churches. When we talk about the regulative principle, I want to be careful not to exalt the regulative principle and say, if these things aren't done exactly like this, that church is in sin. What we're trying to do is go to the Word of God and see how God has prescribed in His Word that we are to worship Him. Okay? So just as churches may differ on certain doctrinal matters without becoming heretical, so also some differences on this issue of the regulative principle ought not to be a cause of division between churches. Reasonable differences should be uh, made, or should not be made, the source of division. Differences in application of the regulative principle should be tolerated as long as each church recognizes its unique identity as the house of God and hold seriously to the regulative principle. So we should be charitable in these things as long as the substance of the regulative principle is sincerely embraced. And a godly fear will result from a genuine embrace of the principle that we must worship corporately only as God has appointed. Right? That's what the heart of Christians longs for. We want to worship God sincerely in every way possible. Okay, this must certainly inject an attitude of caution and conservatism into what we justify as legitimate circumstances of corporate worship. Again, if we just took, let's say, music for example. Again, we would want to think through, when we look back through the scriptures and we see music being used, how is it used? It's used in order to enhance the worship of God. So, if it ever becomes a distraction in any way... And let's say, for example, the instruments become the focal point rather than the words, then we have to deal with that, right? Anything that's getting in the way of obstructing our understanding of who God is, we ought to think through and seek to deal with those things. We don't want to err on the other side, though, and become very legalistic and rigid on this area. We need to think through, when we talk about the circumstances, what would be most beneficial for the worship of God. Okay? Because that reactionary position has caused some to actually violate Scripture on the other side, not, not being too 
loose but too stringent and going beyond and adding things to the word of God. So if and when changes are to be made to our corporate worship, it, it should be done so only after a study of the scriptures to see if that change would be acceptable in the sight of God. Because remember, the goal in all of this is that we worship God correctly in order that God would be praised most clearly and that we, he would bless us with his presence through the means that he himself has ordained. Okay, we've got about five minutes left. Thoughts? Questions? Jenna. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, so like take for example if we went over, you know, to another land where they used a lot of instruments and they were a lot more expressive maybe than we were. So what we would want to do again is, is look at the word of God and say, okay, is that acceptable? And when you read through the Psalms, you realize, yeah, I mean, people used instruments and they used them to the glory of God. And, you know, so again, we, we don't want to say that that's sinful just because it's not the way that we're used to doing it. So yeah, really good, really good point there. Okay, Pete. Yeah. Amen. Yes. Yep. Right. And I just use that as an example. That's not, I'm, I'm not trying to like just harp on music and, you know, but just, but yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so like if you're used to a certain... Uh, certain circumstances within a worship service and then you walk into another worship service where those circumstances are different, it seems foreign to you, but the question that you have to ask is, is this in accordance with the Word of God? You know, so, you know, you go in and people are, you know, clapping and everything, you know, do we see that in the Word? Yeah, we see that in the Word, okay? Again, when, yeah, again, when, yeah, exactly. When it becomes distracting, when things are getting out of order or things like that, that's when we need to need to think through those things. Okay. Any other thoughts?
seconds, and that, that's what we were used to. And then we came here, and like my first couple of times in service, like I fell asleep. Yep. Yeah. I thought about that. 